You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another show. So happy you're here. I got to tell you, there is a spring in my step right now because spring is in full effect now here in Minnesota. It's been the best. It's so nice. Oh, it's been gorgeous. Except for all the smoke, Canada. Are Canada, right stop, with, stop with the smoke. Yeah, please stop. It's hard to breathe outside a few of those days, but you know that aside, uh, trees are fully leafed out now. We've had thunderstorms rolling through. Birds are mi- migrating back, or a lot of them are almost finished migrating back. It's really one of my favorite times of the year. This episode is coming out on May 31st. So that means, at least according to my book, summer starts tomorrow. <laughs> Pretty exciting. Oh, no. Happy summer. Yay. Pretty amazing. June, <laughs> June is gonna be great. It's gonna be great, you guys. Uh, we are yep. talking at we were talking at work just last week about how much rain we've gotten and how the lakes are starting to come back to closer to full after last year's drought. And a horrible, horrible realization dawned on me. Mm-hmm. Sure, having the lakes full is great, and having plenty of water in the soil is great, but the wet spring is a harbinger of something nefarious to come. At least, well, not just that. In the park where I work, you know, the wet spring means wet soil. Yeah, and wet soil means it comes July. We are going to be absolutely destroyed (laughs) by deer flies. You've both worked worked in the same park I have. July is uh, a special hell. Without your head covered, you're toast. Yep. Yeah, you have to wear a hat at all times. This is when you break out the zebra suit. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And if if you don't know what we're talking about, you clearly have not binged all the previous episodes because (laughs) we talked about the potential power of wearing a zebra stripe suit in the summer. Uh, so look, I hate deer flies so much. They sneak up on you because of deer flies. I. I did. I won the staff haiku contest with uh, a, a haiku about deer flies. Uh, they sneak up on you. They bite a good chunk, good sized chunk of skin out of you and fly away. Uh, in Ugh. a wet year, they can make going in the woods miserable for about a month. Uh, and that month is the core of summer camp season, where I'm basically in the woods all day long with children mm-hmm. uh, who don't necessarily always dress the way they should to protect themselves from deer flies. So look, it can be quite a circus. Yeah. And as but as much as deer flies suck, and as much as I loathe them, and as much as it hurts when they bite, it could be worse. Uh-oh. No. Much, much worse. Oh no. You see, there's another fly, one I don't really have to deal with, uh, and it's the black fly. Oh yeah. And black flies are also annoying, uh, and they feed on human flesh. Uh, they uh-huh. like to breed in fast moving water. So they're found near rivers. And some species of black flies are found in um, mostly southerly portions of like the U.S., but they prefer the tropics and like subtropical areas. Mm-hmm. And the bite of the black fly isn't the worst thing about them. It's a silent 
parasite lurking in their saliva that has plagued people for countless generations. Oh, no. Oh, dear. So let's get two things. Yeah, let's get two things out of the way. First of all, yes, I am talking about another human parasite on the show. I'm sorry. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the second thing thing I want to get clear is I want to get this pronunciation out of the way. Uh, This parasite is also a nematode worm, just like the guinea worm I talked about last month. Oh, God. This one is called Anchocera volvulus. I think the 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 species of pithit pithit too like there's multiple ways to pronounce it, but we're gonna go with volvulus, volvulus, blah blah, something like that. It's v o l v u l u s. So make okay. of that what you will. I'm not gonna say it again for the whole episode, so I just want to get that out of the way. <laughs> now, luckily, uh, this particular nematode uh, does not grow to an enormous size and then painfully burrow out of your foot. Mm. Like the last one I talked about, but it, Thank it is you pretty wild. For that. So, yeah, I'm going to go through the life cycle. So, first off, the worm is living in a human host, um, is a little microfilaria. Uh, and the black flies bite a human, and the microfilaria are living in the skin of the human, yeah. and it actually infects the fly. So, humans are infecting the fly. Oh. Uh, in the fly, oh, no. they prog- uh, progress through three different larval stages inside the, the fly, like in different parts of the fly, and eventually end up in the saliva of the fly. This takes about a week. And when the fly bites another human, the larva enter the human and continue to mature, but now in the human's body. Okay. And this, this, this life cycle has to go back and forth between these two different hosts. Uh, they molt through two more larval stages in the humans before becoming adults, which takes about 12 months. So within about a year, oh. they become an adult. Now, you may be thinking, Delayed release doesn't, our, doesn't our body have ways to protect us against things infecting us like that? And wouldn't this be a job for our immune system? Uh, well, yes. But these clever little larvae form a nodule around themselves yeah, they do. as oh. they're developing that essentially cuts them off from the immune system while they develop into adults, which but, is super cool and no, amazing that they can really do cool. that. I hate it. Now, I know the question you're probably wondering is, how big do they get? That's right? one of the questions I'm thinking of. I have uh-huh. multiple well, questions. I Most bet you do. Most of my do. thoughts are uh, why. How do they get out? Um, yeah, the, well, we're getting there. The males uh, can, roam, can roam around the body looking for females. They're, like, they're out cruising the yeah. coast. Um, and, and they are relatively small. They're 23 millimeters, which is... Less than an inch. Not something I want roaming around inside my but body. That's but that's still two centimeters. Yeah. I mean, it's not something you want, right? No. The females, though, um, oh, no. boy. They hang out in the nodules and wait for the males. Uh-huh. And they are larger. And I'm sorry you have to say this, <laughs> but they're up to 700 millimeters long. <laughs> So that's a little over two feet yeah, or uh, two-fifths of a Rachel in the standard measure. <laughs> what? Yeah. You said now, two feet? Two fifths two feet. of a Rachel. Two feet. Two fifths of, of a Rachel. Oh, yeah. at, no. No. Because a foot is about no. 30 yeah. centimeters and this is 70 centimeters. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Yeah. No. So here's the thing. Um, yeah. These don't go to your brain. Uh, well. 
Yeah. So here's the deal. Another oh. part that I wish I didn't. I didn't have. like the. Wait. Oh no. <laughs> I had to think about that for a minute. I don't um, like that. Another uh, another part that I wish I didn't know is that once they are they are mature, uh, the male and female nematodes find each other and they mate in your subcutaneous tissue. Mm. And after mating, they can produce no. 700 no. to 1,500 <laughs> new microfilaria. Why? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> per day. Oh, no. Per day. That got worse, Kirk. Oh, no. It sure did. <laughs> I was waiting for you to get over your shock of the initial numbers. So these microfilaria then migrate to the skin um, where they can be eaten by more black flies. Uh, they're not, they don't like come out and like you do like a crazy dance or you have to, don't like rip them out of your skin like the last one I talked about. They okay. just like hang out right at the surface of the skin uh, at the time of day when black flies are most likely to be out. Mm-hmm. And then um, when you get bitten by a black fly, those thousands of microfilaria in your body can end up in some of those black flies and the whole thing, uh, you know, rinse and repeat. So, Having these things in your body sounds unpleasant, but uh-huh. like w- what what happens, right? Like what can they do? As you can imagine, being in your skin, and they can cause all kinds of skin. Feet. Yeah, well, I mean, I, th- I think though they're probably kind of all like rolled up rolled into the up. nodules, like yeah. they're not. Yeah, they're, so it's not like there's these big two foot long things swimming around inside your body. Um, but you can imagine having all these microfilaria then like it's sort of in, infesting your skin is going to cause all kinds of skin conditions, mm-hmm. including leopard skin, uh, elephant skin, and lizard skin Yuck. are some of the three names of the, huh. the sort of, uh, and you can kind of guess what those look like based on, you know, mm-hmm. your skin starts to look like spotted like leopards or sort of wrinkly like elephant skin and tough or really scaly like lizard skin really and there's dry. some other ones too that don't have as colorful mm. names but a lot of skin problems are uh, a big issue with this but skin problems aren't you know not great but they're not the real danger to humans and the real danger is that if the nematodes reach your eyes oh god oh no so Having them in your eyes uh, can apparently uh, eventually lead to your, not what I would suspect, but your corneas actually cloud over, which is sort of that um, that outer part of your eye. Uh So I think it's actually some sort of reaction your body has to them being in your eye rather than like the fact that they're actually in your eye, which is disgusting. Yeah, Uh, yeah, not a fan of that. Yeah. Uh, since these flies breed in fast-moving rivers, this has led to the condition uh, being called river blindness. So, if you ever heard of river blindness, yes. that's caused by these nematodes uh, that uh, bite people in these areas. So, that's pretty, huh. pretty horrible. One of the things Jimmy now, Carter was working on, right? Probably. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the good news is that even though this is uh, still a serious condition. Uh, there is progress being made in eradicating it. Uh, it's thought that humans are the only non-fly hosts for the disease. So if we could stop it in humans, we can break the cycle and we could really wipe it out. Yeah, that'd be uh, the great. The disease originated yeah. in Africa. Yeah, it, it would be really great. Uh, the d- disease originated in Africa, but was spread to South and Central America by the slave trade, uh, mm. which is horrible uh there were at one point 13 locations in south and central america where it was known to occur and it seems to have been wiped out in 11 of those 13 
which is That's pretty awesome. cool. Uh, it was a it was eliminated in Colombia in 2013, Ecuador in 2014, Mexico in 2015, and Guada and Ma- Guatemala, sorry, in 2016. Uh, there's only one remote place along the border of Brazil and Venezuela where oh. it's thought to still occur. So uh, hmm. at least in south america yeah uh so or and central america so similarly uh it is systematically being wiped out in regions of africa as well as part of public health initiatives there's still a long way to go uh, mostly i think because it's a much bigger area where you're trying to to wipe it out the most recent data i could find was from the world health organization uh which indicated that in 2017 there were 21 million people in the world infected with the parasite. Wow. So that is a huge number, 21 million people. Uh, I, I don't know what's happened since 2017 because I couldn't find that data, but uh, you know, it clearly has not been, been wiped out. There's still right. work to be done. I, I think it's strange because we tell these stories about these parasites infecting animal hosts uh, on the show a lot, like in weird things that happening, turn them into zombies and things like that. And mm-hmm. I think it's sometimes easy to think that humans aren't part of that process, you know, but we get parasites too, right? We are yeah. animals. We are not immune from parasites. And what's fascinating, though, is that we're highly intelligent animals and we have the potential to permanently get rid of a specific parasite if we kind of so choose and really work on it. And so they would, could, you know, potentially just become... Uh, like river blindness could become a sort of an interesting note in the history books of like, wow, this is a thing that used to happen to humans in the old days. It could be something that we just dealt with in the past. There's currently 1.2 million uh, humans on earth with river blindness. So oh, that's different wow. than the 21 million people who are in, you know, not everybody gets yeah. the river progresses mm-hmm. to having river blindness, but there's currently 1.2 million humans on earth with river blindness who have lost their sight to the disease. So here's hoping we can eliminate it and make it um, part of the past sooner than later because it's, yeah. it's really something that um, is pretty tough to deal with. So uh, I just want to tell you about that. Uh, I guess make, make me feel better somewhat that I'm only dealing with uh, deer flies this summer. Mm-hmm. My sources cool. were the World Health Organization, the Pan American Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, and some general information from Wikipedia. Thanks, Kirk. Cool. You're welcome. Well, I hope you all feel more educated now. And uh, yikes. Yeah. We'll take a break. Uh, Rachel, do you have a parasite for us? No. Oh, lovely. We'll we'll, we'll hear from Rachel. (laughs) Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at... Patreon.com slash strange by nature. See you soon. All right. Welcome back, everyone. As was mentioned before we went to break, I do not have a parasite for us. Oh, so glad. Is it something from Australia? No. You're- Is it from the ocean? 
close. No. New Zealand. No. All right. Oh. So, Indonesia. We're not going to guess them yeah, all. Just, just tell us. <laughs> okay. It is from Indonesia, actually. Oh. Hey. <laughs> okay. Right. okay. So there, in 2019, there were a uh, few people, a curatorial assistant at the American Museum of Natural History, uh, a man named Eli Wyman learned about this very interesting creature. Well, I think it's very interesting. That hadn't been seen since 1981. Oh. Oh, okay. These deals, right? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in 2019, Wyman uh, teamed up with Clay Bolt, who was a natural history photographer, and two other uh, researchers. And they decided that they wanted to find, see if they could find this creature uh, in the last known place that it had been found in 1981. Yeah. Uh, which it's is just still sitting right there, right? It, well, or hopefully somewhere, right? <laughs> the, same, the same general area, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, so Indonesia is hundreds of islands. Uh, this one is in yeah. some of the islands in North Maluku. I'm probably saying that wrong. And they spent quite a while looking for this. So this animal, this animal hides or makes its home in termite nests. So what this animal does to find it, they were looking for the most likely termite nests. What I'm right. talking about today is actually the, um, what is it? it? It is actually a type of resin bee. Okay. Resin I'll give you that bee? much. A resin, a resin bee. bee. Okay. Okay. They spent almost five, they spent five days looking around in this fragmented forest, looking for a termite nest, uh, looking and trying to see if they could maybe find this little resin bee. I say little. Oof, okay. So what is a resin the, bee? Ooh, I'll get to it. Okay. So they were looking around, and at the end of the fifth day, they were going back to the car, and they found a termite mound. And they took a closer look, and they realized that there was actually an entrance hole within the uh, termite nest. And they were able to find... A singular. Uh, <gasps> they got super excited. They found a singular female of this bee. Ta-da! First one Amazing. in thirty-eight like, years. While they were going back to the vehicle, they were kind of done for the day and weren't going to find it. Uh-huh. And then boom, there it was. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Amazing. Just like I, I love just it. like love. It's when you're not looking for oh. love that it comes and finds you. Just hits you like a truck. Bees. Oh. Like a now, resin bee in a termite mound. <laughs> okay. Famous, famous metaphor for love. Very famous. Now, why do we care, right? Well, the resin bee that they were looking for is the Megachule Pluto, also known as Wallace's bee, also known or, oh. Wall, or Wallace's Wallace, giant yeah. bee. Yes, oh. Alfred the big bee. Wallace. Of, <laughs> yeah. It of is the fame. world's largest bee. Oh. 
So when you said oh. little b, you were how big is a big b? That's why you sort of chuckled. Yeah, give give us some uh, sizes here. It is what percentage of a Rachel? Oh, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> don't do it that a way. Very no. small percentage of a Rachel, presumably. <laughs> it's, it's pretty small <laughs> when it comes to percentage for Rachel size. I mean, least. we're not living in the Jurassic Kirk, <laughs> right? So right. the the Wallace uh, giant bee is four times the size of a European honeybee. Oh. To give a little context, it's the female. Their uh, ab- their body length is about the size of a human thumb, so about two and a half inches in length. Oh, that's that's a big bee. So it's a it's a big. It's a con- concerningly uh, well, large bee. Well, okay, I flipped it around. They're about a one and a half in length, but their wingspan is two and a half inches. Oh, okay. A wingspan. Okay. Pretty good wingspan, yeah. Yeah. So when you it, said, like, when you're comparing it to the honeybee, I'm like, that doesn't sound that much bigger, but like a two inch wingspan is uh, yeah. sizely. Yes. And the other thing that is uh, pretty distingu- distinguishable about, especially the female of this bee, because the males are absolutely tiny. They're only, they're less than an inch long. But the females okay. have these large jaws that look oh. very similar to, to put this in your brain, they look a lot like um, staghorn beetle jaws almost. Yeah. Oh my. They have okay. like really okay. well-developed like large jaws that go outside of their mouth. Like a big mandible exactly. kind of jaw? Yeah. Wow. And I don't. Particularly a need to see that on a bee. Right? Well, the reason behind that is we meant, I mentioned earlier that it was a resin bee, and Victoria, you were wondering about it. So the resin bee, right. uh, this particular bee especially, those jaws are used to roll up and collect resin from trees oh. to help build up a mound of protection and things around their nest. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, so it was originally collected by Alfred Russell Wallace in 1858. Um, of, of evolutionary theory fame. Yeah. Exactly. He keeps popping up. And of and Wallace's line, which I discussed in an episode. I was going to say, that's right exactly. in that part of the world too. It's right Wallace's in that kind line. of area, yep. yeah. And it had been spotted and found, and people were checking, like learning here and there about it, but it was... It was in Indonesia and there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of interest in looking and finding for this giant resin bee because bees aren't technically charismatic megafauna and don't really super care too much when it comes to habitat loss and things. I mean, something's only you say no one had found it, but if no one's looking, (laughs) right, you're not going to find what you're not looking for. Exactly. So it hadn't been spotted for over 37 years, but there were like specimens found in Indonesia um, and several were actually like sold on eBay because people wanted, you know, people wanted Alfred Wallace's bee and collected in insect collections and things like that. Uh, The Mm -hmm. specimen that was found in 2019, it was living in that termite nest it was filmed, it was, pho- it was photographed, and then it was released. Uh, but it was the first one that had been found in 
in the wild in 38 years, which is phenomenal. Cool. And of course, they were all just so excited. Uh, everyone yeah. was just having the best time, just hugging and high-fiving each other. It was a really nice rediscovery of this particular little bee. Now, because... Well, little-ish, not really bee. Largest bee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, this bee has been put as vulnerable. It, It's not around a ton. We don't know enough about it, but it looks really... As far as we know, just, there's only one. So, as far as... Exactly. As far <laughs> as we know, there's just one, right? <laughs> right. But also, it's not super interesting to a lot of people so just be careful but also like we could have bees that are (laughs) that large around us which is super fun (laughs) but it's always really exciting indonesia right but the biggest thing is like even though like kirk you talked about i think you talked about uh, the ivory billed woodpecker at one point or another and i think it might have been i've mentioned it or it might have been yeah. Victoria. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. there's all we're always looking for things that might have been lost. And as long as we're looking for them, I mean, maybe we'll find them or maybe we won't. Uh, this just happens to be a fun case where we did find it. How about if we're preserving Yay. their habitat? That's that better. would be even better, truly. Honestly, we should That's what be it preserving all comes down to. their habitat and making it sustainable for locals and things to want to preserve their habitat. But that's another uh, fun rant for later. I promise no rants. <laughs> so that's what I have for you both today. Cool. Wallace's giant cool, bee. Fun. Uh, yeah. My sources today, I got a lot of my information from Wikipedia and the Smithsonian Magazine. Oliver Milkman... Millman, not Milkman. Not Milkman. <laughs> Millman uh, had a really sure, great Oliver article. appreciates that correction. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, it'll be Victoria. Hey, before we get back to the show, I uh, want to give a shout-out to our newest patron, Mish. Thank you. Mish. Thanks Yay. for uh, becoming a patron. She's uh, now part of the Platypus Squad, which is our our highest level of listeners. So we appreciate that. Uh, You know, patrons make the show go. You are Mm -hmm. the fuel that keeps this steamship a rockin'. I'm just trying to mix all the metaphors here. I don't know. (laughs) Are we? I don't know. Are we a rocket ship, a steamship, a uh, submarine? Are we just riding in a lazy river? Uh, I think we could be steamship. But you know what? No matter what it is, uh, the patrons, uh, you guys keep it going. And we really appreciate you because we literally could not, you know, keep the lights on and uh, pay for all of our servers and all that kind of things without you all. So thank you. Thank Thank you. Thank you. you. And uh, if you want to become part of the Society of Strange and join these fine people, really the finest, the finest people on earth, you can head over to patreon.com slash strange by nature and learn about some of the benefits and uh, just become part of the the coolest club in the world. So uh, maybe we'll see you there and uh, we'll get back to the show. So my topic this week was a bit inspired by a topic Kirk did a couple months ago. 
And there was also Ooh. another thing that, mm. that kind of started my brain on this one, but I, I'm going to save it for another episode. Uh, okay. So I'm going to start off by talking about Gore Odison. Odison? I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, mm. Gore was a okay. 21-month-old toddler who was one of those kids who just gets everywhere into everything. Okay. They can walk. Uh-huh. I know mm-hmm. the type. Yeah. Yep. Sounds like my cat. Exactly. Um, <laughs> just what I was thinking. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, Gore was visiting a family cabin in Colorado with his parents and his siblings and various other family members uh, one chilly September night. And his mom was getting him and his siblings ready for bed. And she'd helped Gore into his pajama shirt. And she turned away, helped oh, one no. of the other kids. And when she mm. turned back, he was gone. And Oh, no. Yeah. Uh... Earlier in the day, he had figured out how to unhook the latch on the screen door of the cabin and let himself out. Oh, no. Yeah. So, uh, sadly, 25 <sighs> awful minutes later, a cousin found him in a drainage ditch full of icy water. And, <sighs> yeah, he was unconscious, cold. He had no pulse, was not breathing. Oh, like, God. To all oh, appearances, dead. Is- but terrifying. Um, yeah. Awful. Worst and nightmare. A paramedic, an ambulance was able to arrive pretty quickly once they found him. And the paramedic that arrived started doing chest compressions on him immediately, started CPR. And mm-hmm. they kept the chest compressions going once he arrived at the hospital, even though it seemed pretty hopeless at the time. And amazingly, right. after 55 minutes of CPR, oh. um, his heartbeat came back. Oh, goodness. oh man! They got him onto, I assume, a oh. ventilator. And oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, the, oh, no one wants amazing. to sit there being the kid. parents through all that. Just yeah, oh, I can't imagine. I would be bawling my eyes out. Yeah. Yeah. Or just frozen, like mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. Um, and the doctors maybe not the best choice of words. Well, but yeah. yeah. Mm. I I retract that. yikes okay moving on right Mm -hmm. um the doctors actually kept him in a hypothermic coma for two days so they kept his body temperature really low and then interesting gradually started warming him back up and incredibly he woke up yeah with no apparent brain damage and made a full recovery Thank and God. His, his mom later wrote a book about the experience, um, which is how we have the story, which is really mm-hmm. uh, an amazingly miraculous story and obviously has some similarity to the, similarity to the story Kirk told about Jean Hilliard, yeah. who was the Minnesota mm-hmm. woman who exactly, got yeah. stuck in the snow and basically froze stiff as a board, apparently, before recovering. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Wild. a difference here, though, and that is not just the temperature, which was a lot lower for Jean, but the fact that uh, this was a, a drowning and mm-hmm. right, right, right. It is actually not totally uncommon for children who drown in cold water to survive and even to be mm-hmm. uh, an apparently unharmed as Gore was. And one of the things that we think we have to thank here is called the mammalian diving reflex. Oh, oh really? I have to take this off my list. Oh, <laughs> yes. my goodness. Oh, good. Good gracious. So keep going. That Victoria. was quite a buildup. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this this reflex has been 
observed in any mammal it has been tested on. And in fact, it's a bit misnamed because it has been found in any air-breathing vertebrate that has, it has been tested on. So this is Oh, a, really? Yeah, this is a very okay. deep reflex, evolutionarily speaking. Mm-hmm. And its basic function is to preserve any oxygen that is already in the bloodstream uh, and allow the heart and brain to survive drowning or being in the water. Or not drowning, but, but being in the water, basically. And it has been most right. studied in aquatic mammals, which is why it's called a mammalian diving reflex. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, this is a, a reflex that occurs when the face and nostrils, and specifically, if you want to get anatomy geeky about it, it's the area innervated by the trigeminal nerve in the face. So when these areas are submerged in water, particularly cold water, and obviously your, your breath is going to stop. If you're an adult, you're going to hold your breath once your face mm-hmm. gets near the water. Yeah. Um, but this also triggers the body to make two other major changes, which are what the reflex does. So one, the heart slows way down. And two, the body experiences peripheral vasoconstriction, which means that the blood vessels that are outside the core of the body constrict and significantly reduce mm-hmm. blood flow to all the, all the blood vessels to your skin, to your extremities, um, even to some of your major organs, just focusing the blood flow on the heart and the brain. To The things um, that will really keep you alive. Yeah, exactly. And this has the effect of maintaining blood pressure, which would otherwise drop significantly when the heart slows. Uh, and it shuts down all unnecessary body systems at the same time. So digestion, for example. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a survival mechanism. And scientists believe that it is the most powerful autonomic reflex in the body. So autonomic reflexes wow. are sometimes called spinal reflexes, which is actually a literally accurate name. Oh, so wow. This, Yeah. So like when you touch a hot pot on the stove and you immediately jerk your hand away, the reason your body can do that so fast is that signal that you feel that your nerves feel from the hot pot goes to the Mm -hmm. spinal cord and directly back to your muscle without going to the brain. So it's faster. The brain's not involved. The brain's not involved. Um, And so that is similar to what's happening with the diving reflex. Uh, this comes from the spinal cord and the, the kind of the brain stem. So the lowest, most basic parts of the brain are what um, make it happen. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, aquatic mammals have additional adaptations that help them operate efficiently when they're under the effect of this reflex. And so, for example, they have a higher volume of blood for their size than other mammals. And they have adaptations in their cardiovascular system that actually provide storage places for the bud blood when their peripheral blood vessels are constricted during a dive oh cool mm, okay. yeah yeah it's pretty Fun. neat i suppose it's got it's it's got to fit somewhere right exactly yeah yeah and i hadn't thought of it either uh and they also have more hemoglobin than other mammals so their blood can carry more oxygen to give them reserves when they're diving now okay. this this reflex exists to some extent in adult humans uh but it is actually yeah, quite it does. quite strong in human infants, especially up to about the age of six months. Okay. Uh, presumably as a protection against drowning. So even if an infant's face is only sort of gently wetted or laid in the water, um, this, the heart rate will slow down. All the other 
the parts of the reflex will kick in. Mm-hmm. In adults, the submersion of the face has to be combined with them um, voluntarily holding their breath for the reflex to work, whereas okay. it's <laughs> okay. pretty automatic in infants. And so this really helps to explain why it's one of the reasons why it's more common for children to survive near drowning incidents the way that Gore did, especially young children. Okay. Uh, but, you know, the paramedics and the doctors really helped Gore's survival also, first of all, by mm-hmm. doing CPR. Um, but secondly, one, yeah. really importantly, by keeping him cold and giving his mm. brain time to receive oxygen as his body recovered before they warmed the rest of his body back up because most of the oxygen in the blood had been used up right already because he wasn't breathing. And so Mm -hmm. when that happens, the cells in the body begin using uh, anaerobic metabolism and the, the output of that is lactic acid in the cells. Sure. Right. And there's no blood flow to carry it. So it's not going anywhere. It doesn't become a problem really until the body starts to warm up and the general circulation is restored, at which Mm -hmm. point the acidity in the blood can become toxic to the heart and the body's core if the body's warmed too quickly. Oh, man. Before the brain has had time to get some oxygen to it and like kind of get back up to speed. So by keeping Gore's body cold while his breath provided oxygen for his brain, they were able to give him time to kind of adjust and for the lactic acid to slowly be cleared before they warmed him back up. Mm-hmm. And wow. Yeah. Insane. It's, it seems the cold water um, also helps survival in these kind of types of cases because it, it may more strongly trigger the diving reflex, but also it just rapidly cools the body and that can help with kind of the preservation of the brain and the other tissues when they're not getting I mean, oxygen. It slows down exactly. the need for oxygen and all the stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's just, it's a really fascinating thing. I think it's especially fascinating that it seems to be there in basically all vertebrates. Oh just, yeah. That's mm-hmm. insane. Yeah. You really kind of, it makes you, think about what what pressures led to that yeah being there yeah so just Insane. just a fascinating little thing that bodies do cool thanks victoria i did I, have to take you. it off my list it was Sorry. Off. <laughs> i my sources this week were i had several several sources but uh got a lot of my information from Stat Pearls, which is uh, from the National Library of Medicine, and then also uh, a few websites that had some information about Gore's story. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Victoria. Welcome. Thank you. And oh. I was last today, right? We, we all talked. Yeah. Yeah. We did. We all talked. <laughs> yeah. We did it. This was uh, <laughs> amazing. Happy, happy summer, everybody. Happy, happy summer. summer. Yay. Mm. We'll be with you all summer long with more strange nature, so stay Mm -hmm. tuned. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye, Bye. everyone. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. 
You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.